Welcome to the last episode of the Toxic Lawn podcast series, episode eight. We are the stewards of our land, tending our gardens, healing the soil, and welcoming wildlife. Hi there, I'm Kate Sussman, a biologist at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, in the beautiful Hudson Valley. Over the past eight weeks, I've been talking with you and interviewing some incredible people about the toxic aspects of our obsession with an immaculate monoculture lawn here in the U.S. A lot of you have asked me why I did this podcast series. For over 15 years, I've been examining the effects of lawn chemical pesticide mixtures that you buy at garden centers on soil nematodes. Along with my undergraduate student collaborators, I've published a number of research articles and book chapters and have given presentations at scientific conferences. Along with many other scientists, we've discovered just how harmful all pesticides are for organisms from soil creatures to insects to birds to people to pets. Along with other scientists, I've noticed how drastically the wildlife around me has changed over the past 30 years because of pesticide use, over-fertilizing and chemical runoff, cutting down trees and clearing land for lawn, resulting in a loss of songbirds and many other organisms. I've taught classes on the harmful effects of human-produced noise on human health and wildlife. And over these years as a scientist and professor, I have seen things only get worse. It's not enough to just do experiments, publish scientific articles, and teach the future generations. Scientists need to spread the word directly to the people who matter, you. You need to know how the lawn care industry has created a false narrative about lawns that has you spending money and time caring for a toxic monoculture. A false narrative that the green monoculture is the only way to be a good neighbor. Most people have no idea how the weed and feed they apply in the spring is so harmful. How their lawn care practices or lawn services are wrecking the very beauty of the area in which they live. How their kids and pets are harmed. How what we put on our lawns poisons the land and water around us. Eric Chase had this to say in episode 5. Yeah, pesticide runoff and uh, herbicide runoff is terrible. We have a local waterway not far from my house that is never anything but neon green because oh. there's big lawns that come down to it. And so the guys have their lawns treated that runs into the water and encourages algae growth. It's a slow moving body of water, very slow moving. And so it's always fluorescent green just from algae growth because they got the perfect food. Everybody's getting their lawn fertilized and they get everything they want. I think it's essential that we know the truth of things, that we understand how we can make a difference for nature and for climate change just by changing how we think about our lawns. As Doug Tallamy said in episode seven, Our landscapes have to sequester carbon. We've got to store carbon. We've got to support pollinators, not for agriculture, but because they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. Um, we've got to manage the watershed. It's plants on our landscape that manages the watershed. Uh, and we've got to support the food web. The plants we choose are going to capture energy from the sun, turn it into food, and pass it on. Lawn doesn't do any of those things. It is the very worst choice. As a matter of fact, it wrecks the watershed. It kills the pollinators. It doesn't support a food web. You will see the results. This is an environmental crisis, the biodiversity crisis, that you can, you can help solve and see that you've actually done something. 
you know, it's very tough for one person to do something and see a difference in climate change, but you really can see biodiversity come to your yard. It's enormously entertaining and there are a lot of health issues involved there. It lowers your blood pressure, you're, you know, you're, you're less stressed, all kinds of wonderful things happen when you interact with nature right where you live. Many of us are worried about climate change. Many of us care deeply about the natural world. Heck, that's why we live in the suburbs. We want natural beauty around us. We want some healthy, beautiful land on which to raise a family, have pets, enjoy being outside. Once we know there's a better way, that we can make a difference, that our plots of land can help save the world, how exciting that is. That's what helps me feel hopeful about the future. We don't need to only vote, although that's crucial. In fact, it's important that we let our schools, parks, garden centers, and local governments know of the harmful effects of pesticides, fertilizers, gas-powered equipment, especially leaf blowers, to us and the nature around us. But we can also make a real difference by planting native trees, shrubs, and flowers. We can reduce how much lawn and feel okay if that lawn is not a monoculture and is not treated with poisons. It's, it's a win-win-win for nature, for us, for the future. I gotta say that if you've stuck with this podcast series, you probably have digested a lot of bad news about the harms caused by America's obsession with a green lawn. From chemical toxins to air pollution to noise, we are waging a full-out war on nature to create an artificial and monotonous landscape. We spend countless hours and substantial money in the service of grass. We dominate our plot of land and colonize it with turf grass and non-native plants, which effectively eradicate insects and starve out the remnants of the ecosystem's inhabitants. Today, I'd like to focus on the things we can all do to break free of this dangerous obsession and to also help in the climate change and biodiversity crises. It can seem overwhelming to change and break free, but you can, even if your property is in a neighborhood with a stranglehold on how you manage your own landscape. First, stop using pesticides and fertilizers on an automatic full treatment strategy. Fertilizers and pesticides are way overused on lawns and are wreaking havoc in waterways and elsewhere. They have turned grass lawns into toxic wastelands and have wrecked ecosystems. And most pesticides are overused and directed at enemies that often don't exist. In episodes two, three, and four, you learned about just how toxic and harmful pesticides are and how big a problem suburban lawns are in this regard. All pesticides, those that target weeds, those that target fungus, those that target insects, are poisonous to all and are spread all over the globe. Homeowners apply way too many of these poisons, often without even knowing if they have problems. Skip the treatments this year and just see if you have pest infestations or an explosion of weeds. You'll save money. It'll be much healthier for you. There's a lot of helpful information on the internet about how to deal with problems like brown patches in your lawn without resorting to chemical poisons, which really aren't that effective in the long run anyway. In episode two, we heard from Susan Kaplan about a strategy called integrated pest management. Integrated pest management is a series of practices that rely on knowledge of the life cycles and habits of organisms that we might consider pests. 
It's also a set of principles that recognize that seeing a single pest like a mosquito or tick doesn't necessarily mean that there's a pest problem. As she said in episode two, You start with this assumption that we will not automatically use pesticides. First, we're gonna understand what the problem is, so we're not doing that prophylactic use. And that's one way to reduce use of all toxic pesticides. And if pesticides are used, it's only as the last resort, only the least toxic is used, and only the smallest amount needed is used. Another key principle of this approach is that most insects, indeed most creatures, are not harmful, and many are beneficial. This is a real departure from the current practices and beliefs of many lawn owners, the idea that all bugs are bad. The idea of eradicating life from the lawn is not something we should tolerate. Another important aspect of IPM is to set thresholds for what you consider tolerable and figure out ways working with the organism's life cycles to manage those thresholds. There are two pests I hear the most about in my neck of the woods, mosquitoes and ticks. Lawn care services that advertise in my neighborhood claim to be able to rid our yards of these blood-sucking pests to make our yards safe for pets and people. But spraying insecticides that kill all insects, like using neonicotinoids or carbaryl or permethrin, wreak havoc on all the wildlife, and the chemicals are toxic to you and your pets. From an integrated pest management approach, we first need to know if we have a tick or mosquito problem. Is a problem a single mosquito that you see buzzing around or that time you found a tick on your pet or yourself? Is it reasonable to expect that you should have zero ticks and zero mosquitoes on your property? Let's say, for example, you discover a black-legged tick on your body after gardening in your yard. This doesn't mean that you need to spray your entire property with an insecticide to eradicate all ticks. If you do this, you will decimate all the insects and other organisms and will not have a huge effect on ticks. A little knowledge of their life cycle can lead to a more targeted and rational approach. These ticks have a two-year life cycle that involves different host animals like birds, mice, and deer. Humans can be unwitting hosts as well for young and adult ticks. Adult ticks are active in the fall and the spring. In late summer, larval ticks are most active and attached to mice and other rodents and not people. And here's where they pick up disease-causing pathogens like Lyme disease. The larval ticks become nymphs in the spring of the following year and are most active in late spring and early summer. This is where the majority of human tick bites lead to the possibility of a tick-borne disease. Ticks are mostly woodland animals, and with the cutting down of forests to make way for suburban communities, ticks hang out on the edges of properties, where displaced white-tailed deer and mice live. Blanket application of insecticides to the entire yard aren't very effective against ticks. A 2021 study in the Journal of Medical Entomology reported that ticks have developed substantial resistance to the most widely used insecticide for tick prevention, permethrin. Blanket spreading of any insecticide will lead to the development of resistance over time. Some regions have tried to manage tick populations and human tick-borne disease by trying to keep deer and mice out. Erecting high fences to keep out deer and using rodenticides to kill mice. 
those efforts really haven't been effective in reducing the risk of human tick bites or disease incidents. Coating yourself with insecticide or wearing insecticide-treated clothing can be effective, but the chemicals are not good for you. All of the current chemically intensive approaches have had little to no effect on the incidence of tick-borne disease in humans. Personal protective efforts like careful tick checks after you or your pet have been outside are really the most effective and least harmful approaches. Tick-borne diseases like Lyme disease are definitely public health concerns in the Northeast and even in the Midwest, but we need to develop strategies that do not simply gut ecosystems and cause widespread chemical resistance. It's time for a different approach. We know that birds like chickens and wild turkeys eat ticks, lots of ticks. While most of us won't want to raise free-range chickens in our yards, we can work to increase the biological diversity of plants and shrubs, which can increase wild turkey presence in your yards. Songbirds, amphibians, and reptiles like lizards also eat ticks. Possums and squirrels eat ticks. So increasing the biodiversity in your yard and neighborhood can help to manage ticks naturally. Also, being aware of where Ticks like to hang out and being vigilant when you're in these areas can be very effective. Ticks hang out in wood piles and long grasses, overgrown shrubs and wooded areas. They don't tend to roam very far. So when you encounter a tick somewhere in your yard, chances are this is a spot where other ticks might be. You can use neem oil or garlic oil in a spray to those areas of your yard. You could also plant native plants that produce repellent chemicals like rosemary, sage, lavender, and mint. Another pest that most people get upset by are mosquitoes. Many pest control companies advertise and encourage the application of pesticides all over your yard as a mosquito treatment. This approach is super toxic to all the other life in your yard and is not really very effective at killing mosquitoes. The CDC has reported that spraying insecticides is the least effective method for mosquito control and has led to substantial resistance to the chemicals used. Mosquitoes lay eggs in standing water and upwards of 75% of their life cycle involves water. So a very effective approach to keeping the mosquito population low is to make sure you don't have water standing in pots or in puddles and tarps or other features of your yard. Mosquitoes prefer shady, damp areas. So when you enjoy your yard, stick to the drier, sunnier spots, or use local repellents like citronella candles or, or tiki torches. Plant lavender, peppermint, or bee balm, which repel mosquitoes. It's important to recognize that mosquitoes make great food for bats and birds. If you have a healthy ecosystem in your yard, the mosquitoes will likely be an annoying but not intrusive part of it. You can use repellents when you're outside during the key times that mosquitoes are out. And also when you focus on increasing the biodiversity in your yard by reducing the amount of turf, you invite animals that eat mosquitoes like bats, birds, dragonflies, frogs, spiders. Wasps are also a backyard inhabitant that can pester you as you eat or cook on your patio or deck. First, it's important though to figure out what kind of wasp it might be. There are actually many native bees and wasps are also important pollinators or play a role in the ecosystem as food for other organisms. 
most mean you no harm. Paper wasps and yellow jackets are the most common wasps that tend to irritate people. Paper wasps are considered by many people to be pests, but it turns out that most insects that we call wasps are not really harmful. They aren't going to zero in on you and sting you unless you get too close to their nests or if they feel threatened. Paper wasps eat insects, but they also will hover around your sugary drink or garbage cans. But that doesn't mean you should eradicate all wasps, bees, and insects. You can pretty easily get rid of paper wasps by knocking down their nests after dark once they've stopped being active. You could also use wasp traps in areas outside of where you sit and eat to lure them away. Yellow jackets also eat insects and are an important part of the food web. They are also attracted to food and sugary drinks. If they're irritated by swatting at them too vigorously, they can become aggressive and sting you. And they form nests and holes in the ground or in walls. Last summer, we had a huge yellow jacket nest in one of our outer walls, and they accessed the nest through one of our outdoor light fixtures. The nest turned out to be a huge problem, so we had to resort to a localized application of insecticide to deal with it. But we didn't apply the toxin all over the yard. You can place wasp lure traps in areas away from where you sit and eat to try to lure away any foragers that are looking for a new place to build a nest. The bottom lines here are to be okay with having insects, including pest insects, around. There's a big difference between a pest being present and being a problem out of control. Provide sufficient biodiversity so that birds and other animals can keep the pests in check. Use common sense measures like preventing standing water, or covering garbage or food or drinks, monitoring the locations of nests, in order to keep populations away from you are, from where you are. The second thing to do is heal the soil. Soil is not just dirt, but includes plant matter, fungi, and many animals like nematodes, insect larvae, insects, earthworms, and much more. Healthy soil with a diversity of life within it is the crucial foundation of terrestrial ecosystems. The current toxic lawn care practices of pesticide and fertilizer application to a monoculture lead to unhealthy, barren, and toxic soil and poisons our water. As a first step toward healing the soil on your land, stop using pesticides and fertilizers as a blanket coating. Allow some plant diversity to creep in like clover and dandelions. Even better, remove some of your turf, the more the better and replace it with ground covers that are diverse and native or other plantings. A great piece of advice we heard from Doug Tallamy in episode seven is to put in planting beds around every tree. You can do this immediately this year. It'll reduce some of your lawn, will loosen the soil around your trees for the insects. You could also just mulch it or put some native plants around it. It'll add beauty to your yard and it'll be less work for you and your lawn service over the rest of the season. Consider also adding clover to your grass instead of the grass seed that you overlay your lawn with each spring. Clover captures nitrogen in the soil and makes it available to other plants. Another easy way to improve soil health is to mulch your fallen leaves in the fall and let them seep into the lawn and spread them in garden beds and under trees. 
This easy practice will give the nutrients that were in the leaves back to the soil. In just a few years, your soil will be much healthier and you'll see a return of honeybees, butterflies, fireflies, and songbirds. Healthy soil is much better at managing water from rain and snow melt. It's also much better at managing dry spells. Plants living in healthy soil are more resilient to drought and pest damage. Healthy soil is filled with beneficial organisms that can help control pests and that provide important food for other organisms in your ecosystem. You'll also see that you can grow more diverse plants, shrubs, and trees with healthy soil. And healthy soil can store carbon, so your property can help with climate change mitigation. Third, plant for pollinators and insects by planting native plants, shrubs, and trees. You can start small this very season if you have a garden bed or even if you use pots on your deck or patio. Choose native plants this year rather than non-natives. Instead of daylilies, which are non-native and can be invasive if allowed to spread, try blanket flowers or cone flowers. They have gorgeous blooms and attract butterflies. Instead of forsythia, which is non-native, plant spicebush, which also has cute yellow flowers in the early spring and red berries in the fall and winter. Aim for planting the keystone trees and shrubs for your region. It's easy to get information about which trees and shrubs by going to the National Wildlife Federation website or by going to the Homegrown National Park website. For example, from the East Coast to the Midwest and Mid-Atlantic, we are in the Eastern Temperate Forest ecoregion. You'll see a list of trees where the white oak tops the list, but also sugar maple, river birch, chokecherry, crabapple, and hickory. Blueberries and prairie willow top the list for shrubs, and goldenrod, asters, black-eyed Susans, and coneflowers make great flowering plants. There are plants for sunny spots, for shade, for under trees, and most are readily available, and they're also really beautiful. You'll be amazed how quickly you'll see butterflies, hummingbirds, and other critters return to your area. If you get together with your neighbors, you can organize a pollinator pathway for your neighborhood. As insects return to your property, other wildlife will return and a balance will be restored between beneficial animals and pests. Your yard will be a sanctuary. Your soil will be healthy. Your trees will be more resilient in storms. The water from stronger storms will be better handled, so less flooding of your basement and your yard will be more resilient during droughts. And finally, the fourth thing you can do is reduce your lawn in half. This is a key strategy to restore wildlife, mitigate climate change, and reduce the time and money you have to sink into your yard. With less grass, you can switch to electric lawn equipment and reduce air and noise pollution. You'll have a much more interesting landscape to wander through with trees, shrubs, and flowers. As more and more people understand the importance of their yards in preserving life around us, more lawn care companies will focus on native landscaping and less harmful land management practices. As Doug Tallamy told us in the previous episode, if we own land, it's our responsibility to care for it and keep it healthy and a place for life to thrive. It'll get easier. We just need to start. We can recapture 20 million acres for biodiversity by 2030 if we get going now. 
When I started this podcast series, I confess that I felt discouraged and hopeless about the magnitude of the problem caused by our obsession with a manicured grassy lawn. I was sickened by the misinformation and lies spewed by the massive chemical industry and discouraged by how thoroughly brainwashed we all have been about the value of monoculture lawns. But after interviewing creative, smart, and effective warriors like Susan Kaplan, Daniel Rochelle, Eric Chase, Megan Gall, and Doug Tallamy, I feel empowered to make a difference with my own lawn and those of my neighbors. I know that there are many of us interested in dismantling this obsession. I've also learned that most people are unaware of the harms of their lawns because we scientists and activists need to work harder to get the word out to you. Knowledge is power and the way to change for the better and for a safer, more just world. Let's get to it. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast series. If you've been listening and learned something valuable, please go to Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and rate it to help get the word out. Also, if you have ideas for upcoming topics or something you'd like to learn more about, please leave me a comment. We'll be doing more podcast series over the coming months. I hope you'll spread the word to those you know. Thanks for tuning in. The music for this series were original compositions from Jason Shaw at Audionautics.com. A huge thank you to him for composing pieces that are freely available to podcasters like me. And another big thank you to Freesound.com, where people can share recordings of sounds with each other for free.